Good afternoon. Welcome to Optimal Care Pediatrics, conveniently located in St. Lucie West. I'm Dr. Monique Mundesi, physician owner, and with me today is Dr. Vera Jaffe, who is a child psychologist with, who specializes in selective mutism. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about selective mutism. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So first question, what is selective mutism? So selective mutism is an anxiety disorder. It was labeled previously in other categories, but now it's considered an anxiety disorder where children are afraid to speak and do not speak in certain places and with certain people, but they speak in other settings and in other, with other people like at home, with their parents, but usually not at school uh, with their peers or with the teacher. Okay. And so what is an anxiety disorder? That's a very good question. An anxiety disorder, first of all, a disorder is when something, uh, behaviors or feelings that children and adults are having, they are so uh, strong that impairs them. So we all feel anxious and nervous about situations and about their flying or dogs or something like that. But if children in this case, are afraid to the point of not functioning in certain areas, such as not speaking at school and they can't have a social life or be uh, having a normal academic day, then it becomes an, a disorder. And in this case, uh, it's an anxiety disorder where the child doesn't speak in certain places that would be very functional for them to speak. And if they are afraid of dogs to the point that they will run across the street with the danger of being caught by a car because they are so afraid of dogs, that would become an anxiety disorder to their fear of dogs. So that's what an anxiety disorder is. When children are afraid or adults are afraid of certain situations or uh, specific situations or generalized situations. And what age groups do you see selective mutism in? That's a very good question because I am so happy <laughs> that I'm here talking to you, a pediatrician, about this because I've done some research and also research from other people indicates that by the time that children and, of course, adolescents get to my office or to my attention, they already waited at least two years before uh, from the time that they started showing symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I see children who are very young because I treat neurodevelopmental disorders and I work with a lot of the preschools, but children mostly come after they are in the pre-K to kindergarten because then they have to be tested and they don't answer questions and they fail. So that's when the teachers call the parents to talk about the fact that their child doesn't speak. And by that time, the child already was not speaking at school for two years because the child is quiet, doesn't call attention, doesn't create problems. And so that's why it takes so long. But the ages that I see is from, I've seen from two and a half all the way to uh, adolescents, teenagers, and adults. Okay. And what are signs of selective mutism? How would a parent know that their child may have selective mutism? And that's a very good question too, Dr. Mundesi, because a lot of children are uh, showing symptoms of shyness. Today, when I went to a school where a teacher said, I thought this kid was shy, 
when actually the child was showing symptoms of selectomutism a long time before then. So the symptoms are, it could look like shyness, but it's not because the child who is shy will still speak and uh, in certain situations and uh, even at school. A child who has selective mutism is not speaking in certain places and with certain people. And shyness is more like a temperament mm -hmm. and selective mutism is a disorder. It's an anxiety disorder and impairs the child. So the symptoms are when children don't start speaking with certain people. It doesn't even have to be at school. It could be with extended family members who were just coming up with the, with the uh, holidays now, Thanksgiving or you know Christmas or other holidays when families get together from all over the country or other, other countries like we have family other countries and they don't speak with family members that they haven't seen in a long time when they are addressed to, and even at a supermarket, you know, we have Publix all over Florida here, and how they are offered a cookie and they don't say anything or at restaurants. But basically, early on, they show a lot of um, behavioral inhibition too. There what are certain precursors of that. Behavioral what? inhibition and uh, the difference between like a shy Shines being a temperament. Can you explain that? Those two so, concepts. And that's so it's kind of. Uh, I wish I knew exactly how to cut the line, mm -hmm. but I think that um, uh, we are finding more and more that we can kind of predict uh, some of the signs of children with SM and with other anxiety conditions with the way that they even react in your office when you're examining them. Um, of course, some children with SM are hypersensitive to touch and to noise and all that, but not all children with SM are. But I think that one of the ways that we can see the early signs, even before the child is born, is to talk to the mother and to the father and find out, is there any anxiety in the family so that they already start getting educated before even they have the child or when they bring a baby to see you that you can uh, see their interaction with you. So that's one of the signs that we know that it's very genetic. So we start with that and as babies, and then when they become toddlers, it's their first interaction, social interaction. A lot of children have separation anxiety, but not all children who have anxiety about separating from their parents are going to develop selective mutism. Okay. But that happens quite often. But you just look at the signs when children who are already developing their speech and language, they are restricting and they're not speaking in certain situations, and they show other signs of anxiety too. And how common is selective mutism? How common? Yeah. Oh, um, I think that the last uh, time I heard was 0.7%, or is that correct? Yeah, 0.7, close to 1%, percent, yeah. but I believe it's greatly underdiagnosed. Yes, yes. And so if we absolutely. look for it, we increase yes. prevalence, right? We'd see more of it. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right with other conditions too, other anxiety disorders and other conditions. We thought that there weren't enough, but there is... It's more common. And why it's not diagnosed often is because children who go to school and they're quiet, they're not creating problems, they're not calling attention. So unless the teacher is really paying attention to the child socially and emotionally, 
and learns, you know, is watching the child kind of a flat affect. That's another sign, like, you know, a child who doesn't really participate much in recess or uh, other situations, then the teacher is only going to call attention when the child is having difficulties being assessed, which is usually pre-K or kindergarten. So what is a flat affect? Okay, that's a very good question. (laughs) Which is kids who have this just, you know, you can see in the cover of my book, like, you know, they have this this blah, like there's no expression, happiness, or sadness. They look sad, but they don't express. Some children with SM don't even cry. They don't even show tears. And, of right. course, many of them have accidents at school, mm-hmm. and they don't say anything that they need to go to the bathroom because they're so afraid to raise their hand or to ask to go to the bathroom and all that. So um, that's why I think that how how frequent and how the prevalence of it is, it's going to be higher because of this awareness program and, and campaign that the association is doing and also you're doing by having this information. So. Thank you. Thank you. So if a child is diagnosed, what sort of treatment options are there? So we're in the very uh, early stages of evidence-based treatments, uh, because we've been doing, the research has been developing over the last 20, most 15, 20 years. And so the, the treatment, first of all, it has to be assessed correctly. Just a diagnosis of selective mutism is not enough because you also need to look at the child from a neurodevelopmental point of view and you have to see if there's any other factor that is contributing to that, uh, such as speech and language. Uh, difficulties and disorders that could be interfering with that and they're important to be assessed. But the treatment for SM is really depending on the age of the child. So that's why my logo here, my, you know, it's the earlier the better. So that's why I'm so happy that uh, you are doing this work because a pediatrician is a gateway to early treatment does better and better outcome. So the treatment for very young children is mostly working through the parents with exposure uh, therapy. You don't need to do cognitive behavior therapy. You do exposure therapy. And the parents and the teachers learn skills on how to communicate with the child and how to enforce into behaviors that are based on parent-child interaction therapy, which is what most of the centers use. And that's already evidence-based that it works. It works individually and works in, in groups too, intense group treatment. But the approach is really, if you want to tell parents, it's really easy. You have to use three elements, the place, the person, and the activity. Mm-hmm. And you start with the easiest ones, which is place at home, parents, the people, and activity would be playing a game. And then you move out of there to the school and you develop uh, treatment goals like that. And the treatment should be very transparent and uh, including the child would know what it is. And the treatment for anxiety is usually very well protocoled and empirically based. And the selective mutism treatment is based on this big body of research of anxiety disorders, but it's specific for SM. And it's been working at all the centers, and we're growing evidence. 
Excellent. for this approach. Did I make myself clear about the treatment? Or? Yes. Yes? Yes. Like, you so, know, we start with the child at home. Maybe a teacher comes to your to the parent, to the parent's setting and is introduced to the child. Or the parent goes to the school and uh, is doing an activity for fun with the child. And the teacher then approaches. Mm-hmm. And we go in baby steps. And the treatment is very transparent also to the child. The child is a very important uh, contributor to the treatment if the child is a little bit older, not a preschooler. Preschoolers is just exposure therapy and the parents and the therapists and the teachers are coordinating on that. Excellent. Thank you. Very detailed. Thank you. And so what resources can you recommend for a parent who is uh, seeking more information, looking for a diagnosis, looking for treatment? That's a very good question, and as we spoke many times before, again, I'm so happy I'm here at your office, pediatrician, answering questions, and I have lots of questions to ask you too, but it's to go to your pediatrician. Parents need to go to the pediatrician, and it's really important to go and to talk seriously to the pediatrician and show the pediatrician how much impairment your child is showing due to the symptoms that you're bringing to the pediatrician. Because if the pediatrician says, oh, she's just shy, or he's just shy, make sure that you explain that that's not, it's really impairing my child. So with that note, then the pediatrician may make a referral. Mm-hmm. But also, if the child is in preschool, of course, you, the parent will be the advocate for the child to provide all the information they will learn. They can go to the Selective Mutism Association. Mm-hmm. They can go to the CMI, Dr. Kurtz in New York, or Dr. Bloom, who was actually one of the first, uh, she's the pioneer of this whole body of research that started uh, from her need to find out more about the Selective Mutism. And to you and to people who are developing expertise in this and I think that if you go to the Selective Mutism Association website you can go from there. You also can go to the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics, you can go to the other psychiatric associations but I think that uh, SMA, Selective Mutism, SMA.org would be the best place to start but with a pediatrician. And parents, as they are educated, they advocate for their children. Absolutely. Absolutely wonderful. Wonderful to speak with you today. And uh, October is Selective Mutism Awareness Month, yes. so I'm very excited you know, to be talking about Selective mm-hmm. Mutism this month. Um, Dr. Joffe also has a book, Sophie's Voice, and we'll put a link to the book as well as her contact information um, on the uh, the Facebook page. If you have any more questions about selective mutism, feel free to give me a call, 772-301-0123, or post um, on the Facebook page, and I'll be happy to answer them as well as Dr. Jaffe. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> All right,